Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, Florida writer Tim Dorsey discusses his anti-hero Serge Storms, who is obsessed with Floridiana. One comment I do get a lot from the readers is, you know, before I you know, found your books, if anybody ever told me I'd be cheering for a serial killer, I would have said, you're crazy. <laughs> we investigate drug smuggling along Florida's Treasure Coast in the 1970s. One case I was involved in involved them getting caught laundering the money, and it was called Banco Shares. For days and days of that trial, it was a videotaped surveillance of a sting operation. And we celebrate forgotten Florida women. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. The main character in each of Tim Dorsey's 11 novels is a sociopathic murderer named Serge Storms. Dorsey refers to Serge as a lovable serial killer. Tim Dorsey was a reporter with the Tampa Tribune until he quit in 1999 to write novels full-time. Dorsey says it was his observations of real-life Florida that encouraged him to write Florida-based fiction. Oh, absolutely, or in particular, the mystery part of it. Um, I wanted to write about Florida, in, you know, in any case, because it, it's just, I love the place, and it's so quirky and unusual that it just it lends itself to uh, some, some unique stories. Um, however, doing uh, the crime part of it uh, and, and sort of the murder mystery plot line to hang all of that other stuff I love about Florida and travel and history um, the newspaper's indispensable, uh, all of the stories that I covered. And essentially, I picked, uh, I kind of fictionalized the ones where um, they sparked the greatest sense of moral outrage. Because if, you know, if you work for a newspaper, you see thousands of stories and, and you, you start to get jaded. But uh, what ends up happening is um, you know, certain ones you just don't forget. From Dorsey's first book, Florida Roadkill, to his most recent, Nuclear Jellyfish, and those in between, such as Orange Crush, Cadillac Beach, and Atomic Lobster, his main character, Serge Storms, has demonstrated an obsession with Florida history and culture. Dorsey says he shares that passion. 
Oh uh, yeah, I have to. You know, guilty as charged. Uh, that part of my uh, of my antihero, the killer, uh, is uh, I'm nonviolent, but uh, but we both share the. Uh, the, the obsessiveness of Florida, souvenirs, uh, picture-taking, everything. Tim Dorsey follows a strict work ethic, writing one novel per year, followed by an extensive book tour. Dorsey takes advantage of his travels around the state to do research. Last year, Dorsey tracked down the Jacksonville bar The Pastime, where the band Leonard Skinner was inspired to write the classic southern rock song, Gimme Three Steps. Yeah, uh, well, what I try to do is um, I try to use the book tour because I, I go extensively around Florida and, uh, and, you know, I'm doing a book a year. So I will do, you know, some specific research trips just before I, uh, I end up doing the book. I usually, once I have the outline, I'll take a trip that follows the 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 plot because uh, usually there's a lot of road tripping in the books um but when i do when i do my uh, book tour i have a scavenger list and i'll go hunt out you know like some famous leonard skinnard site or you know a civil rights you know uh, historical area or something like that uh, which i did for for nuclear jellyfish uh, you know among other places i went to i found the uh, the condo which used to be the hotel where down near miami where joe namath gave his famous poolside prediction stuff like that while Tim Dorsey's books are obviously works of fiction, he does strive to be as accurate as possible when describing Florida's people and places. The stuff that is historical um, is, uh, I, I try to get it accurate. I mean, I fact check it. and I mean, the, the actual storyline of the book is, is obviously fiction. But um, that almost serves, as we were speaking before, uh, just my passion for all things Florida. And so um, I actually contour the plot to move through all of these locations uh, where, you know, of course, and my character is obsessed about this stuff. So it's a natural that he's going to gravitate and visit these places. While Tim Dorsey was writing the initial drafts of his first novel, Roadkill, Serge Storms was the villain, but really a secondary character. By the time the book was finished, Serge had taken on a life of his own, becoming the main character for all of Dorsey's books. Well, I, I, it's it's difficult, but I mean, you know, he's he's completely insane. But he, he's a he's a lovable serial killer um, because uh, that's um, and, and that's because he only kills the people in Florida that are you know ruining the state and exploiting you know so you know. So he's busy down here, and uh, but um, at the same time he has an underlying moral code, um, which is at odds with you know his criminal and criminally insane nature. But you know that code is you know you don't pick on the underdogs, and, and that really upsets him when he sees you know some decent citizen getting uh, you know the short end. Written with a dark sense of humor, Dorsey's novels are often cathartic for readers and Dorsey himself. It, it's cathartic for me, and, uh, and and one comment I do get a lot from the readers is you know before I you know found your books, if anybody ever told me I'd be cheering for a serial killer, I would have said you're crazy. <laughs> 2009 Rossiter scholar Stuart Ferguson writes about Florida history and culture for the Wall Street Journal. Ferguson says that Dorsey's unusual character appeals to people interested in Florida history and culture. Well, I think that one of the main things is Surge, who's the, I don't know if you can call a guy who engages in spree killing a hero, but sometimes he does feel like a hero and he spree kills the certain annoying people. Um, and Surge has this sort of obsession with Florida history and folklore and trivia. And so it is kind of a wild ride around the state whenever you're going on him with any of his uh, criminal exploits, frankly. But you can't help but like the bad guy. 
Serge's and Tim Dorsey's love of Floridiana manifests itself in a variety of ways. Stu Ferguson. Well, he's always sort of trying to get his dim-witted partners in crime interested and um you know and they they just want to hit their next bong hit earlier but he's he's wants to slow down and admire the kitschy scenery along the route um or even if i remember from roadkill which i think is the first book and the first one i read surge even comes up with you know very clever ways of killing off his enemies that managed to refer to Florida history. Ferguson says that Serge's love of Florida is contagious and that Dorsey's readers can learn a lot while being entertained. Oh yeah, they, they do. And in a way, this is the thing that kind of makes Tim Dorsey's fiction stand out from, there is a whole, you know, raft of Florida writers, mystery, whether they're humorous like Carl Hyacin or more serious like James Hall or, um, Randy Wayne White, um, and and they all give that Florida feeling to it, um, and they and especially Carl Heisen likes to get the feeling of the Florida crackers in the Old South. But the only one who, as far as I'm aware, really gets into the nitty gritty of it all is uh, Tim Dorsey with with Surge. And I I I want to say I first came across these books because my my stepfather lives in Panama City Beach and bought them at a a wonderful bookstore up there at a seaside called, I think, Sundog Books, and he's the one who got me onto them. Tim Dorsey's 11 books were not written in chronological order. For example, his fourth novel, Triggerfish Twist, is a prequel to his first novel, Florida Roadkill. Tim Dorsey. Uh, that wasn't a plan at the beginning, but as as I went along, um, I, I did it uh, because that's just where I felt I wanted to write at a certain time. Um, I, I always think of, of uh, what uh, what would be the most fun to write, which is what guides me. Um, I don't try to contrive anything. And, and at certain points, I said, "Well, you know, I'm going to jump ahead with the characters a couple years, you know, so that I can leave, you know, what I'm, you know, where they are currently, you know, behind, and so that they can." You know, have some you know more development, and then um, then later on, sometimes I'll think, okay, well, let me bridge that previous gap and show what happened. Uh, and, I, and I don't necessarily have that in mind when I do it, but uh, I guess basically I, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just screwing around. <laughs> Dorsey says that one of the secrets of his success is that as outrageous as they are, his characters are realistic. They're based on, on uh, either real people or real types, and we know those types. Uh, and there's certain characters in the book where uh, they, may, they may be extreme, but I'll get like a lot of feedback at book signings or, or email where they say, "Yep, no, that's my brother-in-law," or you know, "I've got I got a friend like that." You know, just <laughs> you know, everybody seems to uh, recognize at least certain you know, of the Florida you know, you know types in the book. Surge, the lovable serial killer, may sound a bit like the Miami-based serial killer Dexter, who has his own television series on the Showtime network. Dexter is from the novels of Jeff Lindsay, which were published after Dorsey's first use of Surge. Dorsey may have a chance to see Surge on screen in a film version of Roadkill. Well, they're trying to put together a deal. Uh, it may happen, it may not. Um, it, it all has to do with the casting and if they can get the commitments from the right people. But but they've got a screenplay done, and uh, they got a director, and uh, there's a you know production company that's Really trying, to, uh, really trying to make it happen. So I got my fingers crossed. Tim Dorsey doesn't covet anyone else's success and acknowledges that he has been influenced by other great Florida writers. Oh, w without a doubt. I mean, and, you know, like uh, the, the, 
just we have just some great writers who I just idolize. You know, like Carl Hyas, and you know, I was just I was just in awe, and uh, and you know, I was just uh, and, and he, as, as I said, inspired me, uh, you know, to you know do what I was doing. As well as uh, I was reading Randy Wayne White and uh, James W. Hall and. Uh, um, Ed Buchanan's wonderful. I mean, we just—I mean, I, I couldn't. I'm, I'm sure I'm missing a whole bunch, but you know, we've, we've got a really strong school of, uh, of Florida writing going on right now here. Tim Dorsey's latest novel is called Nuclear Jellyfish. It's the 11th novel featuring serial killer Serge Storms, who is obsessed with Florida history and culture. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, encouraging you to visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. We have an extensive photo gallery, Florida books for sale, and lots of interesting information. That's myfloridahistory.org. The Stan Zimmerman book, A History of Smuggling in Florida, Rum Runners, and Cocaine Cowboys, is available at myfloridahistory.org. Janie Gould has this report on drug smuggling along Florida's Treasure Coast in the 1970s. The Treasure Coast had a dubious distinction in the late 70s and 80s. It was a major drop zone for marijuana smuggling from Columbia. There was no radar between West Palm and Melbourne, and plenty of pastures and unused roads that made handy landing strips. Russell Peterson, a Vero Beach lawyer, represented as many as 50 accused pot smugglers. He's never forgotten the two guys who were flying in with a load of marijuana and decided they could safely land at Stewart's sleepy little airport. Unfortunately for them, they picked a bad day. Drug agents were assembled at the airport doing training exercises. They didn't realize that until they were taxiing in. They said we figured they were going to swarm on top of us at any moment. And then we figured, well, there's no reason for them to do this. And our plane is a pressurized aircraft, so if we just close the door and keep it closed, we'll probably get some time. In other words, they won't smell anything. They won't smell anything. The plane had to reeked in the inside of marijuana. So they get out, close the door quickly, and had a briefcase. They walk over to the wing of the aircraft, and they open the briefcase, thinking if they leave it there, anybody who's watching is going to think they're going to come back. And then they sauntered in 
And they're saying, hello, how are you, to law enforcement officials, you know, these guys that are overly armed and radioed and practicing to catch guys just like them. The pair ambled out of the airport and fled the state. And eventually they got caught. I assume that the uh, task force eventually found what was in that plane. They did. And we tried to come up with a defense that the aircraft was pressurized so they couldn't smell the marijuana to suspect the aircraft to enter it. The jury didn't buy that, though, uh, did they? didn't buy that, no. Actually, these didn't make it to a jury. We struck a deal with the government and got a lesser sentence. Smugglers made lots of money, all cash, of course. One case I was involved in involved them getting caught laundering the money, and it was called Banco Shares. For days and days of that trial, it was a videotaped surveillance of a sting operation. The FBI had a money-counting garage. The smugglers would come in and talk, and they talked too much. Bragging to each other? Oh, yeah, about what had happened and what they'd just done and how they got the money. We had to sit through that trial watching these tapes. Meanwhile, you're trying to convince the jury that your client's innocent. A tough job, right? really (laughs) tough. You had clients who uh, would tell you they had a long night. Oh, yeah. We're walking into court one day in Miami, and the client's with me, and they said, uh, man, we just got into town. I said, what are you kidding? I thought you were staying here at the hotel. And they said, well, we had to make a run last night. There was a curious case of an Indian River County businessman who was accused of pot smuggling. When he failed to show up for court one day, his bail bondsman stood to lose a six-figure bond. The bondsman hired Peterson, who advised him to send a detective to Columbia. Turns out the suspect had died when his plane crashed on takeoff in Columbia, and his body was buried at the end of the runway. But the bondsman still had to prove it was the right guy. A dentist got the suspect's dental records and went to the burial site. They dug the body up, was decomposed, and this was months and months later. They managed to get a tooth or something? Well, they got the whole jaw, I think. They matched the dental record with the jaw of the body they found and were able to show that he had died. So the bail bondsman got his money back? I think he did. They were um, pretty brave people, weren't they, these smugglers? They were very, very brave. They were not mean. They didn't kill people. They didn't kill each other. It was what I would call your high school hero type guys that were gregarious, just loved to talk. Russell Peterson stopped handling drug cases years ago. First, it involved too much travel. And also, I thought it was getting dangerous. I said, this isn't the right thing to do with your life. So then I turned more to the civil practice of the law. You ever hear from any of those guys? Oh, yes. A couple of them. The ones that I see have completely turned their lives around. That was Russell Peterson of Vero Beach. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Looking out on the morning rain I used to feel uninspired And when I knew I'd have to face another day feel so tired Before the day I met you Life was so unkind Your When you think about important women in Florida history, some of the first names to come to mind might include Mary McLeod Bethune, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, Zora Neale Hurston, or Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings. Bill Dudley has this report on forgotten Florida women. Until recently, American history textbooks have ignored the women who played important roles in politics, the environment, and the struggle for equal rights. In June 2002, I talked to a historian about a group of forgotten Florida women whose stories were only then being recognized in a new exhibit. Certainly when you're one of the few women in the nation to be a mayor, you would hope that people would remember that. Instead, they've forgotten. Historian Doris Weatherford has authored women's history reference books for several major publishers. Recently, she was asked to create a traveling exhibit for the Florida Humanities Council on the subject, Forgotten Florida Women. Marion Horowitz, elected mayor of the Glades County town of Moorhaven in 1917, is just one of the women whose lives are celebrated in the exhibit. We've got some Miami women, some Tampa women, some Jacksonville women, some Pensacola, some Tallahassee, but there's also Phillips Mayor and Moorhaven and uh, Green Cove Springs. We try to make it a geographical mix as well as an ethnic mix as well as a chronological mix. The story begins in colonial times with Eulila, an Indian woman who saved the life of Spanish officer Juan Ortiz in 1529, an incident which parallels the more famous Pocahontas nearly a century People later. People get the impression that Pocahontas was singular and not even quite real. In fact, in many eastern tribes, women had the decision-making power in life and death of captives, and so it was not at all unusual to do what Eulila and Pocahontas did. There's the strange story of Rachel Jackson, wife of Florida's first territorial governor, Andrew Jackson, and a relative of George Washington's. Her first husband was abusive. She left him, went back to her family because, in fear of her life. And she thought that he had divorced her. But divorce in those days was a very complicated process, and he had only done the first part of it. Women couldn't file for divorce anywhere in the nation in the 1830s. When she married Andrew Jackson, she thought that she was divorced. As it turned out, she was not, and Jackson's enemies used that as a scandal. It really strongly affected Jackson's presidency. She died just before he was inaugurated, and he believed that it was a heart attack caused by her anxiety about going to Washington. One of Weatherford's favorite forgotten women is a 20th century African-American artist. 
I think the woman that I most want attention for is Augusta Savage from Green Cove Springs. She was the only person of color to exhibit at the 1939 World's Fair. She was a sculptor, and she did incredible work. Uh, unfortunately, she couldn't afford to cast it and keep it in bronze and preserve it. But the photographs that we have of her work, it's, it's wonderful. She had to, to fight her way to using her natural talent as an artist, and for a while was very successful, but has been completely forgotten. I think one of the things we've learned from women's history is that women can make enormous contributions to their community and their society, but that also women like blacks, immigrants, other minority groups have had to really struggle against serious constraints set by law and by custom. Rutgers University historian and women's studies professor Nancy Hewitt points out that throughout much of Florida's history, women could not vote, sue for divorce, or even sit on a jury. I think one of the things that's really important that we learn from looking at women's history is that many women were working within tremendous constraints, both legally and economically, in order to make the sort of contributions that they did. And the fact that women still managed to contribute despite those constraints offers us important lessons for today. I ran into a photograph in Look magazine in 1960 of a woman named Eula Johnson who integrated beaches in South Florida. At the time that people were doing sit-ins at cafeterias and restaurants, she led young people in swim-ins at the beaches. And there are angry-looking pictures in, in Look magazine of, of sheriffs trying to keep these black people from swimming on a beach that was designated for whites. Remembered for her favorite phrase, how be ever, Eula Mae Johnson remained an activist until her death in 2001. The exhibit's final panels celebrate a pair of female politicians in the 1960s. It ends with the two women who were first elected to the Florida Senate, who bizarrely were both named Beth Johnson, Beth Johnson from Coco and Beth Johnson from Orlando, both of them representing districts that were very important at that time because the Coco district was developing Cape Kennedy and the Orlando district was developing Disney World. And they were the first two women elected to Florida Senate, and they were both named Beth Johnson in the 60s. Historian Doris Weatherford is now working on a multi-volume American women's history organized by state. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. Visit us on the web at flahun.org. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Please join us again next week. 
If you can, visit us in person at the Library of Florida History in Coco or on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.